Tonight's bulletin was made over a month ago, and working that far in advance, mistakes were inevitable. I have Leviticus 5, 1 through 6 as the text, and that's what you see in the bulletins. That's wrong. It should be Leviticus 5, 14 through 19. So I will read that passage now. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks, with your valuation in shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary, as a trespass offering, and he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing, and shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priest." So the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandment of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. And he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish from the flock with your valuation as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance in which he erred and did not know it and it shall be forgiven him. It is a trespass offering. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. Let us pray. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. At first glance, it might be difficult to tell the difference between the sin offering and the trespass offering, and one reason for the confusion would be that we use the words sin and trespass as synonyms. And of course, that's correct in one sense, but in another sense, there is a difference between the meanings of the words. But We don't need a dictionary to help us out in this case because we have Scripture. If we read the description of the procedure for the trespass offering, we will see that on the whole, it was offered in cases where the sin was confined to the sinner's knowledge. In other words, you committed a sin of which no one else was aware. You could have easily carried on as if nothing was wrong. If you didn't admit it, no one else is the wiser. There's something particularly significant related to that train of thought in the name that Scripture gives this particular offering. In Hebrew, it's called an asham. It's highly significant that Isaiah 53.10 uses the same word of Christ's sacrifice. The prophet says, when thou shalt make his soul an asham, an offering for sins. It's as if what the prophet is saying is that his soul was made an offering for sins no one saw him commit. And of course, that's because he never did commit any sins. Now, the animal required for the trespass offering was only and always a ram. And this was a reminder of Abraham offering Isaac when God substituted a ram for Isaac. In the trespass offering, the blood was always put on the sides of the altar, not on the horns like in the sin offering. The blood of this sacrifice was put in a less conspicuous place. Our text gives us 
two specific cases to which the trespass offering applied. Fraud toward God in respect to things of His worship, and fraud toward man, wrongs done to the first and second table of the law. Verse 15 shows us a transgression in regard to the holy things of the Lord. This passage reminds us of Ecclesiastes 5.6, which says, Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? So what are we looking at? What has happened? In his desire to be well spoken of, to be known for his piety, a man has vowed more than he could afford or more than he really wished. It's easy to imagine a man getting caught up in the heat of the moment. Everyone else was making pledges and he didn't want to seem less generous than everyone else. And so he made a rash vow, which he either had no means of keeping or he just vowed more than he actually really wanted. And now, when the priest came to take his share of the offering, the man was tempted to deny that he had vowed so much. That's the scenario our text is addressing. Well, the Scripture gives us a handful of examples, very specific cases, actually, in Exodus especially and in Deuteronomy. Cases such as, a man vows to give a certain amount of his first fruits, or wool from his best sheep, or a certain number of calves. And when the time came to fulfill the vow, he realized that he had shot his mouth off and he couldn't afford what he had vowed, or he had vowed more than he ever actually intended. Let's, let's uh, imagine a specific scenario. For the past several years, a farmer's heifers have been exceptionally healthy, and all of his calves have survived, even the twins. Confident that things will just continue this way, the man vows to give 40% of this year's calves to God. But this year is rough. He has 90 pregnant cows, 50% of the calves survive, and only 80% of the survivors are healthy. 40% of 90 is 36. Guess what? 45 calves survived, 80% of 45 is 36. That means he has 36 healthy calves. In order to fulfill his vow, he would have to give them all. Let me ask those of you who are calving right now, is that an impossible scenario? No. See, the Bible hits us right where we live. In Psalm 15:4, David says, Blessed is the man who swears to his own hurt and changes not. In other words, he doesn't renege on his promises because he notices, ah, I overshot the target. Of course, you can argue that it isn't your fault if a bunch of your cows miscarry or lambs have birth defects or your crops get hailed out. But what our text is showing us is that when these unpredictable things occur, that doesn't get us off the hook. Our words are so sacred that nothing invalidates or nullifies them. When you give your word, even if it turns out that it's impossible to keep, you are not thereby guiltless. In fact, in verse 3 of our text, we're told that we are guilty even if the vow we made was to do something wrong. You've sinned by not keeping a vow which would have been sinful had you kept it. Our words are that serious. Jesus said, 
For every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. So it's easy to see how this class of sin follows from what we looked at last week. It may not have struck you with sufficient force, but the offering we looked at last week was for acts that weren't known to be sins at the time they were committed. Let's have a concrete example of that. You hear firsthand from an eyewitness that a person, let's call him James, well known for his piety, was seen staggering out the door of a bar. In your shock and disappointment, you let several other people know the bad news. Three years later, you run into an old friend you haven't seen in ages, and he says, you know, I saw James about three years ago. It's embarrassing to admit it, but I was, I was sitting in a bar drunk as a skunk, and James came in to use the restroom, and as he was leaving, he slipped on my spilt drink and almost broke his neck falling out the door the door. So guess what? There was a perfectly innocent explanation for James staggering outside the bar. Now God's law says that despite the fact that you had no intention of lying or harming the man's reputation by spreading false information, you are still guilty of violating the ninth commandment. You have borne false witness against your neighbor. Or say you go to visit your friend who is a priest. And when you get there, he's out running errands. And his wife says, hey, if you're hungry, just help yourself. She doesn't realize that the food on the counter came from an offering. And only the priests are allowed to eat that. Well, you unwittingly eat the forbidden food. A few weeks later, you bump into your priest friend out on the street. And you happen to comment about how great the lunch was that you had that day. And he says, oh, no. You weren't supposed to eat that. That came from a sacrifice. God's law says you're guilty. You ate the priest's food. Now, do you see the common thread? The thread that runs through these things is that intention is irrelevant. You may not have meant any harm, but in God's eyes, you've still done what shouldn't have been done. Intention is irrelevant. The act was still committed. This is a shock to modern man. We're accustomed to a legal system with more holes than Swiss cheese. Our system may have been built around law. It isn't anymore. It's built around loopholes. Shysters have taken a system designed to protect the innocent and corrupted it into a system that protects the guilty. When a lawyer gets a case thrown out on a technicality, society is coerced thereby into professing, despite the pile of corpses, that no crime was committed. We almost expect criminals to get off. People can be caught on camera committing horrendous crimes, and even then, loopholes can be found to get them off. We hear of cases every day where a court finds a man not guilty, despite the fact that video surveillance shows him break in, shoot several unarmed people, and steal property on his way out. But, because as he was fleeing the scene, one of the dying shooting victims called him a racial slur, his actions are not to be held against him. He's the victim, and the dead man got what he deserved for saying a gamer word. You're, of course, no doubt aware of some of the ridiculous lawsuits that have been successfully argued where the victim willingly 
willfully engaged in reckless behavior, but someone else has paid through the nose because there wasn't a sufficiently clear warning label. And the warning labels themselves are instructive. Your granddaughter has a doll that rides in a boat. And the boat comes with a lifesaver too small to be a pinky ring. But that package has a warning that the lifesaver is not a flotation device. Now, is anyone on earth that stupid? No, of course not. Are there people perverse enough to sue the toy manufacturer for millions because the lifesaver didn't say it wasn't real? You bet your boots there are. The manufacturers know this, hence the warning label. Now, I'm not trying to go off on a tangent about our corrupted legal system. That would take all night. My point is this. We've been conditioned to exonerate the guilty on the basis of flimsy excuses. In fact, we're accustomed to thinking that flimsy excuses are actually legitimate. Read every passage of Scripture that deals with the killing of a man, and you will search in vain for discussions of the perpetrator's mental state or IQ. These don't enter the discussion because they don't change the fact that a man is dead. Blood has been shed, period. And unless that blood was shed in self-defense, in defense of one's nation during wartime, or by pure accident, the man responsible must pay. Our Pavlov dog reaction that this isn't fair only betrays our lack of value for life. None of these considerations matter. A life has been taken. God's law reflects God's justice. God's justice is inflexible. If God's justice were anything but absolutely and infinitely inflexible, He would not be perfect. He would be guilty of perverting justice. And if you think that bar is high, that's nothing. Under the Mosaic law, <coughs> excuse me, there were hundreds of cases where you could do something totally innocent by, from our modern point of view and be guilty under the law. Holiness is a lot holier than any of us think. The wages of sin is death. And for that reason, Old Testament saints were not to touch dead bodies. Now, a special allowance was made for father or mother or unmarried siblings. But other than that, if you touched a dead body, you were defiled. You had to bathe, wash your clothes, and stay away from church for a prescribed amount of time. And when you were allowed back, you had to offer a sacrifice. Now, there were cases where contact with a dead body was totally accidental. You're helping a little old lady cross the street and suddenly she dies as you're walking. You were actually engaged in a good deed, but now you're unclean. A dead animal falls from a tree and lands on you. You're unclean. You're at someone's house and you sit in a chair that an unclean person has sat in. You're unclean. You merely came into contact with the effects of sin and you are tainted. Now, if you're experiencing a sudden rush of fear, which says, oh my, I may be guilty of millions of things of which I'm not aware, that's the desired effect. That's what you should feel. That's why David prayed, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. God's law intends to give us tender consciences. 
Romans 12, 2 says that sanctification comes by the renewing of our minds. The passage reads, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now let's break that down by starting at the end. The Christian is to be governed by the will of God. God's will is revealed in His Word. A man may be insufficiently familiar with the contents of God's Word so that he doesn't fully know what God's will is. The solution we're given to this predicament is the renewing of our minds. Renewing the mind is a long-form way of saying repent, because the Greek word for repent literally means to think differently afterwards or to change one's mind. It carries with it the idea that I used to think that this thing was okay. Now I understand that it's wrong according to God's will, and therefore I no longer think it's fine. That's repentance. That's renewing the mind. So Romans 12, 2 is telling us that the transformation of our lives comes by way of thinking about sin the way that God does. Incidentally, this tells us that the defining feature of the world's mind is that it does not think about sin the way God does. The world most definitely does not think about sin the way our text describes it. The world attributes sin only where there is intention. I didn't mean anything by it is a universally recognized get-out-of-jail-free card. I've heard people justify murder, theft, adultery, and slander as if these acts were perfectly acceptable under certain conditions. We do not find such illogic in Scripture. Scripture teaches that sin is a monster with many forms, and every form has many hands, and every hand wounds, and every wound is death. God's law, as I said, is designed to give us tender consciences. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, biblical commands tell us something about ourselves about our nature. Now, you may think it's the most natural thing in the world to know that adultery is wrong, but the fact that God's seventh commandment actually states it tells us that we are prone to commit it and justify it. So when Scripture commands us to glorify God in eating and in drinking, what we're being told is that we wouldn't even think of God's claims over our eating and drinking were the subject not directly addressed in Scripture. Now, isn't that frightening? How cavalierly do we just march through our daily routines without so much as a fleeting thought that these acts are to be done in honor to God, and if they can't be done to God's honor, then they just shouldn't be done? Now, what we've learned in our last two services is that sin is far more pervasive than we ever realized. The fact that I committed an act naively three years ago doesn't change the fact that it was sin, nor does it exonerate me of guilt. Why? God is holy. There's no other way to explain it. Sin wreaks havoc everywhere, even when it is unseen. It wounds and kills everything it touches. But behold the grace of God. For each wound sin causes, there is balm in Gilead. Jesus is omnipotent to heal. In Exodus 15, 26, Jesus calls himself Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord that healeth thee. 
Sin committed intentionally or unintentionally is still sin committed against the most high majesty of God. All the variations of the trespass offering resolve to this one consideration. God's law has been infringed. His will has been transgressed. The sinner's motives are absolutely irrelevant to this fact. There isn't a good enough excuse to break the least of God's commands. And in fact, doesn't that already say something about us? That we feel comfortable categorizing God's commands as greatest and least? God's will has been violated. Justice must fall. That is raw creational fact. Look at the last verse of our text. He has certainly transgressed against the Lord. Our text, and many others like it, teach us that no sin is a mere trifle, not even unintentional ones. No unholy act can be committed under the smile of heaven. Your intentions are irrelevant. Wrath must arise. Job says, affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Solomon writes, like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. How many times have you said to yourself, I don't understand my plight. I've done nothing to deserve any of this. And the truth of the matter is, you've done far more evil than you could ever imagine. You just love sin so much you don't notice. Scripture describes Judgment Day with these words. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And the dead were judged by the things which were written in the books. Has it occurred to you that this is probably saying that everyone has so much sin that it requires books, plural, to record them all? The gospel that Christ came into the world to save sinners is a direct response to this need. Think about this sacrifice. It appears related to things of lesser importance. Victimless crimes, as we're wont to say. The existence of this offering, though, reveals God's wrath. Sin is judged and judged terribly. Where trespass has been, death must follow. So what does all this death and gore signify? The answer is trespass brings death. No soul can sin and live. Intentional, unintentional, deliberate, accidental, none of those considerations matter. Law has been broken. Judgment must fall. The soul that sins shall die. That's the message this sacrifice is loud to preach. God proclaimed this truth in Eden. He pictured it through the ceremonies of the law. The martyrs sealed this truth with their blood. Faithful pastors still proclaim it. This is the truth that Satan hates, apostates mock, and worldlings tread underfoot. But in closing, let's consider some important things that this sacrifice shows us. The trespass offering condemned transgressions regarding holy things. Now think about how frequently that happens. How many have virtually invented their own religion? God speaks plainly from His throne. He clearly states His will. He shows us the only way to heaven, but man refuses to be taught. Man chooses the filthy rags of human nature rather than the gospel robe of righteousness. You cannot build a tower to Babel a tower of Babel to reach heaven. This is a trespass in holy things. And this trespass slays the soul. Again, how many men and women in the midst of sore trials have made rash vows to God? 
Lord, if you get me out of this, I swear I'll go to church. I'll have my kids baptized. I'll never miss communion. And they think that they'll buy heaven with religious forms. The trespass offering refutes this error. Truth is a thin line, a narrow path with a cliff on either side. The devil's system is full of contradictions. It doesn't matter which of two opposing lies you believe. Some denigrate religious forms as nothing. Others make them everything. Both positions are wrong. The devil doesn't care by which error you perish. Religious forms aren't nothing. God ordained them. They feed the soul and strengthen faith. That's the place Scripture gives them. But no religious form will ever cleanse sin. They, they do not have the power to hold back God's wrath. Woe is you if all you've ever put your faith in is observance of religious forms. This is sin, and therefore it is death. The gospel, when slighted, leaves no hope. Now, view the trespass offering again. Behold it in faith and see the light shine through. A dying victim comes forth. A substitute is taken. The innocent dies in the sinner's place and pardon is granted through the proxy's blood. No amount of sincerity, no amount of devotion, no amount of religious commitment can repay if you kept your heart sinlessly committed to God for one minute solid, that would merely be God's due for that minute. There's no such thing as surplus of merit. That's the wicked fantasy of popery. Our text shows us men engaged in the holiest acts of worship and sinning in those very acts. Apart from Christ's imputed righteousness, our good works only worsen our spiritual bankruptcy. So here we see the beauty of the trespass offering. Jesus is salvation to the full. Death for sin is not the, the whole of His work. Jesus' death does not grant us our own merit. It doesn't fill our hands with our own righteousness. He must also pay a whole life's obedience to the law. Salvation requires both. Perfect obedience and satisfaction for sin. And that is an impossible debt for any sinner. Only Christ could make such a payment. And the Gospels tell us that He did. If you are Christ's, then God sees you in Christ. As if you had obeyed His law perfectly in your own person. Not because you have, but because He did. Since Christ is God when He obeys, it is divine obedience. God thus finds unsullied obedience in His children because their righteousness is not their own, but His. That's the gospel according to the trespass offering. It preaches to us in emphatic terms that sin stains our hearts, souls, and minds every minute of every day. The offering shows, portrays to us the remedy. Christ's cross and life are pictured to us in this offering. The sacrifice shows Him dying to pay the penalty. It shows His righteousness overflowing. It shows our guilt covered by His robe of righteousness. It shows us full pardon. In this sacrifice, Christ says, cling to me in faith 
and all your trespasses are buried in my wounds. What answer do you give? Can you reject the only offering? Let us pray.